שבוע טוב. In Parshat Truma, you have multiple words that appear made out of the same letters that are very similar uh, in ways that are kind of hard to ignore. Specifically, you have reference to the Kaporet, which is the cover of the Aron Kodesh, the container that the tablets of the covenant and other items are to be kept in the center of the tabernacle at the center of the Mishkan. You have the word parochet, which is a kind of screen or veil that's meant to separate different parts of the Mishkan, which is this tabernacular tent uh, that is being constructed according to the instructions given in Parshat Uma and elsewhere. Uh, and you also have a mention of the word kaftor, which is button, but in, in modern Hebrew, but in this context, it refers to, in the construction of the menorah, a kind of a piece of the, the worked metal that has to be shaped a certain way. So you have parochet, kaporet, and kaftor as three words that are appearing right around in the same place as each other in a narrow space of verses describing the construction of the Mishkan, of the, of the central facility with which the Mikdash, the temple, is going to uh, be built around and operate on. And raises the question, I mean, why would that be? Why suddenly do we need Kaf, Pei, Taf, and Reish to appear in different orders, talking about different pieces of the same larger assemblage of items um, that are going to be used for service of Hashem. And there's maybe one kind of an explanation you could try to develop by seeing a commentary that comes from another part of the Torah, uh, which is Parshath Noah. So in the story of Noah, Akadosh uh, Baruch gives instructions for construction of a different thing, which is the teva, the ark that Noah uh, is going to be surviving in. And when HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, instructs Noah to use caulking in the hull of the uh, vessel that he's building, the word that's used is So, and you shall Hawk the hull with pitch. <clears throat> so that the whole verse is Ase Necha Tevat Ase Gofer Tinim Tase Etateva Uchafartha Otha Mibait Umihuts Bakofer. So make an ark of gopher wood, rooms shall you make in the ark and shall pitch it inside and outside with pitch. So the appearance of kaf, pei, reish, and tav in the construction of the Mishkan is in rapid fire, but here elsewhere in the Torah we have another instance where these four letters appear together in a different jumble. But again, it's about construction of something, uh, and it, even just on the basis of this sequence of letters, you know, appearing so many times in the case of the Mishkan, I think we wouldn't be able to dismiss it as arbitrary and unrelated, even on that basis, but it, in addition, is talking about building something, so that makes it seem even more relevant. And the question is, what does it mean? Okay, so 
the four-letter sequence, let's take for granted its significance, that it, it means something. It appears in the construction of the Teva, of Noah, of, of the um, eh, of the Ark of, of Noah. Um, and now we have to ask the question, what does that tell us about the Mishkan? Or what does the Mishkan tell us about the Ark of Noah? And I think maybe there are three different things you could say. Um, possibly more, but I, I think in rapid fire, there are a few different simple things. One, maybe the simplest is just to say, it's interesting to look at what Noah is doing and, and perhaps think of the commentaries running in that direction, saying, you think that what Noah is doing is trying to build a seaworthy vessel. And perhaps in some sense he is. But he's doing it because I got those Baruch who told him to do it. And so at some level, this isn't an engineering feat, so to speak. It's an act of Avodat Hashem. He's doing this to serve the commandments of his creator. And that is a point that's easy to understand if we compare the Teva, the Ark, to the Mishkan. Because what the Mishkan is about is building something that at some level is technology, perhaps, but it's to be used for Avodat Hashem. It's, it's, it's all different constructions that are meant to be assembled together in order to enable the fulfillment of the commandments that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given B'nai Yisrael. So from one perspective, we could say, okay, we think of Noah as he's building a boat and the boat needs to be seaworthy, but perhaps part of the point that Torah is making is that the only thing that really keeps this boat afloat is that Noah is doing this at Hashem's behest, and so HaKadosh Baruch Hu is watching over him. And so, you know, you can have all the technical success that you want from your cleverness, but if HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants you to fail, then you will, and you can also not seemingly be doing something that is so technically feasible. And to be honest, putting a bunch of animals on a wooden raft uh, and trying to float through a days-long flood does sound a bit technically difficult. But if HaKadosh Baruch Hu has told you to do it, then he's going to be able to stack the deck to make you successful in ways that we couldn't anticipate. So maybe that's the first point. We also, at the same time, can read back in the other direction and say, oh, well, it's also maybe a little interesting to realize that insofar as the Teva was technology, like it's a boat and it floats, it does something. It's not just Avodat Hashem of a, of a random arbitrary nature, but rather it's a piece of technology that has a particular function. And that is how Noah is serving Hashem. Perhaps we should be looking at the Mishkan and asking, oh, well, are there things about what the Mishkan is that should be thought of as more like technology, right? We think of the Mishkan as a way of worshiping Hashem that has ritual status and that the things we do with it only matter because they fit within the framework of instructions of how to serve Hashem according to the laws of the Torah. But the Mishkan at another level is still technology, right? It's used for things. It's used to produce fragrant smoke with the Mizbah the incense altar. It's used to slaughter animals and grill the meat from those animals and sometimes burn up the meat from those animals entirely. Uh, and a variety of other things as well. And at, at that level, it's, it's easy to forget at some level, you know, because we are so focused on the importance of serving Hashem and doing whatever he says, whatever that is, that there is a sense in which we can say that the Mishkan is, is kind of a, a barbecue or a kitchen or, or, or something of that nature. It's, it's a, a set of technologies that, among other things, 
enable the preparation of certain kinds of food that are to be eaten before Hashem or perhaps burned upon the altar. So we don't usually think of the Kohanim as chefs because they don't get to be creative and change the menu every day, but they are at some level kind of grill masters who are following a very specific set of instructions. And it's easier to recognize that once we think about, okay, some of this is just technology that could be used for a variety of purposes. You know, and one of the things it's for is grilling meat, for example. And that's not the only thing that it's for. And so we have this whole opportunity to understand the Mishkan and the Mikdash, the tabernacle and the temple in a different light if we focus on what the tools and implements out of which these things are built actually are able to do. What do they enable us to accomplish with the material world? And why is that how Hashem wants to be served? And, and there's all sorts of directions we could go in from there. But we'll close that one off. And then maybe there's still a couple more, more things to say. Um, so another kind of question, or another kind of way that you could imagine answering the question is to say, maybe this is about the choice between different kinds of construction. Noah is building the Teva because he's just a guy who's living amongst a society of wicked people, and he has a relationship with Hashem enough that he can hear the voice of Hashem and fulfill his instructions, but somehow, although he's tzaddik b'dorotav, he's like a, a, a righteous person for his generation, he's surrounded by a society that is so wicked that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given up on it and says he needs to start over and he's going to wipe them out with a flood. And the point then is that if that's how you seek to relate to humanity and your society, where you sort of, you treat your relationship to HaKadosh Baruch Hu as being totally individualistic, uh, and it's all about you and him and his message for you, and it doesn't matter what's going on around you, then you're going to end up building arcs, so to speak, that the kind of way that Hashem will have you serve him, if your relationship to him is based entirely on who you are as an individual and who he is and, and what his message is for you as an individual, the way he will have you serve him is by building an ark, so to speak, because uh, the 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 only thing you're good for, in a sense, is to save humanity from destruction when it doesn't have uh, the right relationship with him. Whereas, as an alternative, what B'nai Yisrael become is this way to serve Hashem, not by building an ark, not you know in the midst of destruction, but instead by building a mishkan, by building a temple, by building something that's meant to last and something that is meant to produce continuity and that's really meant to be a gathering point for a whole society, right? So it's the polar opposite of Noah, who is the singular uh, exception in a society that those Baruch wanted to destroy, whereas the mishkan only can work and only can function properly and only can really be used not by one individual, but rather by a whole nation uh, that is meant to gather in the Mikdash for various purposes throughout the year and throughout different kinds of points in their lives where they have different needs and obligations and uh, mistakes they've made that they need to atone for and everything else uh, that the Mishkan and the Mikdash are for. So another point here may be that it's contrasting 
fully individualistic relationship with Akadosh Baruch Hu on the one hand, uh, and uh, something more communal and national on the part of Bnei Israel in the Mikdash. And from that standpoint, we maybe view the case of the Mikdash as being more attractive because uh, we would prefer, presumably, not to be uh, in the midst of such destruction. And and maybe what's necessary for that, the Torah is telling us, is a whole nation that can try to build something together and serve Hashem with it together instead of always uh, trying to sort of thread the story through history with individuals with, have, that have some kind of exceptional um, moral fiber and you know prophetic ability to relate to Hashem directly. So those are... I think we got up to maybe three different ways of looking at things. And now I'll just settle briefly on the fourth one, uh, which is, I think it's also true that we have to look at this and say, how should we understand the Mishkan as being like the Teva, right? Which is not actually so far-fetched insofar as the Teva, among other things, was meant to preserve sacrificial animals, at a greater population density than other kinds of species. And, the you know, when Noah gets off the Teva, he makes these zvachim, he makes these korbanot, he makes these offerings to HaKadosh Baruch Hu out of these different animals. And, and so there's this sense of sacrificial offering as being connected somehow with the Teva. So maybe it's not even such a difficult connection to make from those facts on the surface. But also, you know, you could go another level deeper and say, is there any sense in which the Mishkan is meant to be some kind of Noah's Ark for Bnei Yisrael? And clearly that must be a, a metaphor of some kind, because we're not saying it's an actual boat. Uh, we build the Mishkan on Harabait in Yerushalayim, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and that is not uh, a place where boats have much use because we're way up in the mountains and far from the sea. Uh, but if that's the case, then how might it be nonetheless still true that there's something about the Teva um, where, where, where the, the Mishkan is, is going to perform a similar function in some way? And, and how would we understand that relationship? So you know, there may be many answers you could give to that question. One that I will hazard that's, um, you know, a speculation perhaps to some degree is that I think at least in the terms of the sweep of history, the Mishkan seeks to be that. Meaning the Mabul, the flood of Noah, is not really at the end of the day just one thing that supposedly happened a long time ago. It's really trying to provide us with a model for the experience of humankind. It's really about how things come to an end. Right? What it's saying is that who creates and then gives people a chance to make their choices and eventually societies that ultimately are not based on relationship to him are going to face the consequences of the, you know, the contradictions and the degradations of where all of these uh, choices lead together over time when people are, are trying to do something else than adapt their actions to what they understand those Baruch's will to be. And insofar as that's the case, the Mishkan 
as a teva would be the way that B'nai Israel as a society get to stick around uh, and and ride out the calamity, so to speak, right? And you know, and when I say the calamity, I mean when you go into the rest of Tanakh, this is fairly clear. Like if you read the book of Jonah, for example, Sefer Yonah, there are many elements that parallel the flood of Noah, aside from Yonah, right? The, the flood of Noah mentions a Yonah, a dove. Um, Yonah, the prophet, is named after that same animal. He goes on a boat. There is a city of wicked people called Nineveh that is prophesied to be destroyed. And it's od arbaim yom Ninwen So it's after another 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. So there were 40 days and 40 nights of the flood. It goes on and on. Lots of parallels there. And in Sefer Yonah, the point is we're talking about the end, right? But it's not the end of all of humanity. It's the end of a particular society, a prophesied end of Ninwen that is resulting from the fact that they're wicked. So it is in some sense, just showing you that the Mabul, the flood, happens over and over again on different scales and different times, and it takes different amounts of time. And also, it's not necessarily always a flood. It's 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 a an overturning, right? An end of something that had once flourished, but now is is falling apart and at risk of you know being destroyed. And the understanding from the standpoint of Tanakh is that when you're being destroyed. Uh, as a society, that it does, in some sense, derive from failings that those Baruch sees that are of a moral nature or of a, of a nature that has to do with your relationship with him. So insofar as that's the case, what the Torah is telling us is that this is going to happen again and again and again, right? It's going to happen to, I don't know, uh, ancient Egypt, for example, right? We, we think of ancient Egypt as having been destroyed because of Yitzhiat Mitzrayim, and indeed it was, but it's also the case that there is some sense in which really maybe Mitzrayim uh, is being destroyed as another kind of Noah flood, like that it's a wicked society that cannot stand at some level. Uh, I think there is even maybe a reference in the text that makes that connection, the use of a rare phrase, the etzim, a yomazeh, or something like that. I mean, that there are, there are textual connections that you can find that link Moshe and Yitzhak Mitzrayim and, and, you know, leaving of Egypt um, to the Noachic flood. Also with Sodom, with Stone, you know, that's another example. Also with, if you look at our, you know, more stepping outside of Tanakh, thinking about other things that have happened in history, it just becomes obvious that empires rise and fall, right? That there's all sorts of different great powers that once ruled the waves or ruled the Eurasian continent or whatever else. And the Mongols came and the Mongols went. And in some cases, you know, it can be, you can have the Mabul at both ends because the Mongols arriving must have been the end of something else, um, someone else's destruction. But then ultimately also Mongol, you know, the Mongolian dynasties don't still rule the Eurasian continent in the way that they used to. Um, and the Spanish Armada once ruled the waves and now uh, Spain is not the imperial power it once was. So, that can just keep happening, right? And it happens on different timescales and in different places. And the point is that B'nai Israel are supposed to be, uh, to some degree, insulated from that. And I mean, obviously, Jews are not insulated from the ravages of history. And in some ways, the Jewish people have 
uh, been at the receiving end of the brunt of, of some of uh, history's worst horrors. And yet there is both a sense in which we could say that the Mishkan represents the general idea of serving Hashem and that therefore, you know, if Hashem's people serve him and identify themselves as his people, there is some sense in which we are the remnant that survives, right? That whatever kind of floods we live through, whatever kind of uh, ends of, of global order uh, that the Jewish people have uh, seen take place in the last several centuries, if you just limit yourself to that, you could say, okay, maybe it was rough for us, it was difficult, but we're still here. And uh, there is substance to the promise that Hashem has made with his covenant with us, that we're his eternal people. So it could just be saying that we're making that point, that the Mishkan is about serving Hashem, and if we serve Hashem, then he keeps us. And so it's like we're Noah in his Teva, Noah in his Ark, riding out the waves, um, riding out the flood, while other things happen. You know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapses, or whatever else you want to point to like that. But you could also talk finally about the Mishkan itself if you really want to get explicit with, right? We're not just talking about serving Hashem in general, we're talking about this structure that we're supposed to build on Harabait in Jerusalem. What does that have to do with our survival? Obviously, if you are willing to think magically, it could have all sorts of things. You could say, oh, well, if we do it the right way, we build it the right way, we serve Hashem the right way, then we won't have the kind of problems that other nations have because our invaders will somehow trip and fall on their swords at our borders uh, because we deserve that protection. And there may be some sense in which it's fair to say that Akadosh Baruch Hu has our back in that way. But I think it's also true that the Mishkan, you know, we can, be, we can think of it as serving this purpose, not let's say only magically, or let's say you know, not only in ways that we can't possibly comprehend, but in ways that we can comprehend. Why? Because the world changes over time and technology changes and languages change and political orders change and popular gods around the world change, et cetera, et cetera. But the Torah, by which we serve Hashem in the Mishkan and the, the specifications of how the Mishkan is built and all of that, do not change because they're written in the Torah and there's one way that we're supposed to do it. Uh, and to the degree that that's the case, it becomes a kind of an anchor for our culture and for our society and for our national mentality that something like this can exist, that we can participate in. But if we can build a temple in Jerusalem and on Rabbait, and if we come and go, and you know, sometimes we're there and sometimes we're elsewhere, but we're kind of always in this revolving door, you know, like the angels that Yaakov saw in his possibly quite relevant vision uh, of the ladder in Beit El, right? Uh, that we're sometimes ascending up to the mount and sometimes we're coming back down. But as a nation, as a whole, that's constantly in contact with this set of structures and practices that are fixed, we end up being anchored, right? Because we have to weave and we have to dye fabric and we have to be able to smelt metal and shape it in the right way in order for us to have the trumpets or, you know, the laver or whatever else it is that we're going to make um, in the Mishkan. And 
we have to be able to raise livestock of a certain kind, cows and sheep and goats, and we have to know how to slaughter them. We have to know how to grill the meat and all of these other things, right? So there are all these activities where you don't get to just say, well, that was then, but this is now. This, you know, the, the, the previous Mishkan is so passe, and now we're going to boil iguanas instead of grilling sheep, right? That doesn't get to happen because the laws of what it is and what it consists of are fixed, and it becomes this ballast, this sort of unchanging, rich set of practices that the nation is supposed to be all involved with in this revolving door sort of way. And you end up ensuring that this is a culture that maintains knowledge of certain kinds of animal husbandry and maintains knowledge of how to grow certain crops and how to make wine and how to do this and how to do that. And it all seems quite arbitrary, but in a world that we now inhabit where people are constantly wondering when technological change is going to sweep in again and suddenly totally change something that has been done this way for the last 10,000 years, but now will be done this other way instead in ways that can shred social fabric and cause economic upheaval and play with people's expectations about the future. You know, I'm not talking explicitly yet in any way about artificial intelligence, but obviously people are very interested in that in particular, but Really, we don't even need to talk about AI in order to recognize how much technology can upend things. You know, if you just look in the last hundred years, having gone through telegrams and then telephones and televisions and everything else, tele only to get over to the internet and then to smartphones. And, you know, before you know it, you're typically communicating with people in completely different ways than anyone did even, you know, a few decades ago. And that's changing the way you interact with other people and everything else. And, you know, we're about to go down the uh, trap door of VR goggles with AI and everything else and see what that does to humanity, right? When you think in those terms, the world out there is a mabul of Noah of some kind. It doesn't have to be water that drowns everyone in order for it to be big change that no one can see beyond. Um, that leads to tremendous upheaval socially, economically, politically, you know, all around the globe. And the point is that if we build a Mishkan, then we can't get around the fact that in order to accomplish certain mitzvot, you have to do things the way that they were done a long time ago, right? You can't just look at pictures of sheep on VR goggles and say that you performed a sacrifice in the temple. Uh, in order to accomplish that mitzvah, you have to get an actual sheep. And that actual sheep has to eat actual grass and grow somewhere uh, that has physical territory and can't exist in a virtual digital space. Um, and, and, you know, you could just multiply examples like that, where the fact that the mitzvah is accomplished a certain way with a certain material and a certain craft and everything else ends up rooting our society in the world in a way that has a kind of tangible stability and connection to what people have done agriculturally, economically, uh, technologically for a very long time and, and isn't going to be able to just suddenly jump into the new way of doing things and leave everything behind and forget the skills and the crafts and forget the history and forget the connection to the place and the land and, and do something else. This is an anchor 
And from another perspective, therefore, it is an ark. It's a Noah's ark. It's a Tevat Noah because the rest of the world is not so well anchored, right? And the the storm that's coming with the ever accelerating pace of technological change does promise and, and really has already delivered on that promise to a significant degree to bring great upheaval to societies that don't realize the full consequences of changing the way that they vote or the way that they communicate or the way that they typically consume food or et cetera, all these, all these different things that it's easy to start down the path and, and not necessarily easy to predict where the path leads. And I'm not trying to say this in, in, in a way that would, would, would attempt to suggest that all of those changes are bad or that the ideal thing would be for the world to reject them and prevent them. Preventing technological change or protect, preventing historical evolution, that can get very ugly as well. But the question is, how do you anchor yourself in ways that will keep you having the proper relationship with other people and with other with Akadosh Baruch Hu in the face of an ever-intensifying uh, maelstrom that is seeking to transform so many things about the social order? And I think the answer might be the Mishkan. The Mishkan, among other things, is a set of commitments that B'nai Yisrael make to doing certain things a certain way so that no matter how many VR goggles and uh, companion you know, AI robots that talk to you uh, or perform actions on your behalf when you tell them what you want them to do, no matter how many things like that come along, you're not going to be able to tell a robot to bring a korban chatat for you or to uh, visually, virtually simulate bringing uh, that korban rather than actually bringing a sheep up a hill in Jerusalem. Uh, and it may indeed be the case that by anchoring ourselves in this way, when we build the Temple Bezrat Hashem soon, that we will really be doing all of humanity a favor. Because, yes, we want new technologies because they bring many benefits to all of mankind. Um, and we want those changes in some ways, but then we give in to the temptation from wanting them to sort of throw the doors open wide, and suddenly we get a whole bunch of changes that we didn't even really know uh, we were signing up for. But if there is a mamlechet koanim, a nation of priests here in Eretz Yisrael, operating uh, a temple for all of humankind on Harabayit in Yerushalayim, there will be a nation that uh, is resilient in the face of, of this, let's say, onslaught of technological upending and, and uh, endless transformation and change. And, and maybe by keeping the home fires burning, so to speak, or by being a ballast or an anchor for humanity, by being that Tevat Noach that sort of takes all the different species of animals, so to speak, that takes all the different things worth preserving and shields them and protects them and takes responsibility for them and involves them in a sort of uh, set of uh, obligations for caretaking and provision of food and all the other things that Noach is doing. You know, when you generalize that and you think about the activities that Bnei Yisrael will obligate themselves in um, in the operation of a temple, it may be that one of the gifts that we, Bezrat Hashem, can give to humanity as a result is we will not forget 
what it is to grill your own meat or what it is uh, to smelt metal and, you know, make shaped metal work um, that is beautiful and that has uh, uses like lighting olive oil for a lamp and everything else, that if we keep the memory alive of those kinds of activities, that we will have an economy and a society that will help humanity keep its own soul in the face of all of the you know, temptations to give that up um, as technology takes us an ever dizzying uh, or like ever more dizzying uh, new and difficult to predict or control directions. We would like to encourage our viewers to share these videos with friends and send in your responses. If you would like to obtain Birkon Nusach Eretz Yisrael or invite the rabbi for a speaking engagement, please email us at office at machonchilo.org.